Welcome to Season 2, Episode 23 of Beyond Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Brendan Colley. Brendan is a writer. His debut novel, The Signal Line, is out now through Transit Lounge. He joins me from his home in Hobart. Welcome to the show, Brendan. Oh, great to be with you, Ben. You grew up in South Africa and you've lived all over the world. How did you end up in Hobart? Well, after I finished university in um, Johannesburg, I immediately left to go abroad and I went to London first and and um I'm a teacher, so I was lucky to be able to, to sort of, you know, develop my career while being on the mood, on the, um, on the move, so to speak. And um, that journey took me from London to Japan for a couple of years, um, back to London, back to Japan, and finally um, to Melbourne, and then into Hobart. And the reason you got from Japan to Hobart was you met your wife there. Is that correct? Yeah, we were both teaching English in in Japan, and um, this was my first time in Japan is where I met Yvonne, and then we went on um, a little bit of a road trip together through Europe, and um, we went to um, we went to London for a couple of years, back to Japan, and it, it's you know after eleven years we felt like we needed to settle down, and and so obviously we decided that we would make Australia our home, Victoria first, and then across here to Hobart. It's such a beautiful place, but what are the best and worst things about living in Tasmania? The best thing is the size. I, lo- I love the size of, um, of the town. It's, it's small enough where I just, I just feel it's, it's a place where I've become connected to everything, I've lived in large cities um, through my life: Johannesburg, London, Osaka, and. Um, but it's interesting that even through those times, all the stories I wrote were sort of set in a town about this size. So to finally sort of um, to make a place like Hobart home feels sort of organic to my spirit. I, I don't know how else to explain it except I feel very comfortable um, living here. The there is nothing to not recommend Hobart as far as I'm concerned. There's such a good um, um, art and culture scene going on. So it's everything that that I look for or I need. Um, and even the weather, I take the cold over the warm anytime. <laughs> Me too. I'm coming down in winter. What are the best places I should go and see? Recently, our favourite um, uh, part of Tasmania is the the west coast, the northwest coast. I think that's the most um, the most beautiful um, part of Tasmania. Whenever we go away, and during COVID, where we haven't sort of travelled interstate or internationally. That's where we've sought to um, to escape to, and um, you know, to to those beaches and coastlines on on the west of Tasmania. It's very remote out there, isn't it? Yeah, good for reading and and great for writing. 
<laughs> Perfect. I'll put it on my list. All right, let's move on to the signal line. You wrote this book a few years ago, quite a few years ago. It won a Premier's Award for the Best Unpublished Novel. The story revolves around Gio, who's a musician living overseas, and his brother Wes, as they are brought back together in Hobart because Gio wants to sell his parents' house after the death of their father. Then all of a sudden a ghost train full of Italians arrives in town. Could you tell us a bit more about the central characters of your book and your ghost train? Well, the ghost train came first. So I'm always on the lookout for, um, for bits and pieces that, that, that might be part of a greater story. And I remember, I think it was 2013, I came across this article on, um, on ghost trains in Europe. And it, the, the detail um, in the sightings and, you know, in this phenomena, the way it was written so sort of captivated me that I put, put aside my then project for a couple of sessions and I sort of just sketched out this, this ghost train that started making appearances on old, the old tramway lines around sort of around Hobart. And I had a nice little arc there, but I didn't know who the story belonged to. I didn't know who the characters would be. So I tucked that away like I do. So as I, as I mentioned, um, I, I'm always on the lookout for those sorts of things. Plus I'm on the lookout for motivations, um, characters, uh, uh, platforms or a stage in which to tell a story. And the following year, um, when I finished the, the, the project that I was working on, which took me six and a half years to write, it was roundly rejected um, and, and, and understandably so. But it was the first time that I sort of was really... Um, faced with with this I was basically as in a situation where I started questioning my dream of writing like is this a worthwhile expenditure of my time you know 15 20 hours a week on top of a full-time job is this something that if I do for another 20 years and I'm not published is that going to be okay and that actually became a feeling or an idea that I thought I might want to explore in a book and I thought um, it, it might be interesting to marry it with this ghost train I mean I wanted my dream to be as certain as a train on a track but what's more sort of elusive and out of reach than a train that is able to 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 sort of materialize and then disappear off the track and just this this visual of a ghost train pulling up to a platform and then vanishing in front of the, the passengers that were waiting to, to board it seemed to reflect um, the, own the, the same feeling that I had about a dream in writing that was sort of disappearing before my eyes. So um, that's when I sort of went in search of a character who was Geo who was an aspiring violist, 30 years old, on the audition circuit in Europe, who had the talent to justify that dream, but possibly not the talent to, to realise it. And he was now himself questioning um, um, his own goals and whether or not this is something that is worthwhile pursuing. So those two um, ideas, um, or that idea and that motivation, um, sort of became a match that I started writing. We were talking before recording about 
uh, conceiving these narrative strands separately and then trying to put them together. And the difficulty, I guess, that it puts to a reader reading a blurb or a publisher is that, you know, they, they are quite separate because one could be a really ordinary family drama, which is fine for some folks, and one is a quite, um, a quite fun um, paranormal story. Could you tell us a bit more about putting those two together and I guess the, the difficulty that that caused and eventually the resolution because I think it actually comes out so much better for the two stories because you've got a grounded narrative with something that's a bit more experimental. I think um, when I was writing the story, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of where it might fit on a shelf or, you know, what its category might be or what genre is it that I'm writing. Um, I had been writing for so many years up until that point that I really believed that I was writing the story for myself. But when I did finish it and I started getting some responses from agents and publishers who I was querying, um, they were putting those, quest those questions towards me. Um, I had one publisher who suggested it might be worth writing the story without the train. Um, someone else who was hoping that it might be quirkier than it was. And the tone that came out was, um, was surprising and and maybe that's why it took um, almost two and a half years to, to find a home after I finished it. But um, for me, um, it, it, I can't say it ended up sort of being the story I wanted to write because when you throw, throw, throw together two such um, um, uh, uh, different things into the mix, I wasn't sure what that end sort of atmosphere or tone would be. But um, looking back at it now, that it, it is the book that I had hoped to write, but it did surprise me maybe as much as it will readers too. I think that's the thing that surprised me about it because in a way I was expecting something that was a bit more dour, I suppose, a bit more of that really, you know, Australian trait where we write depressing novels about families hating each other and getting into fights all the time. But the fact that this ghost train comes along and you have these characters like Sten, the ghost hunter, and then you've also got Labashane, who's running the eccentric bookshop, who's also a South African, which I found amusing. Um, and those kind of characters that come in and it does give the novel such a lightness of touch. And so I think that it, it's something that does have quite a lot of depth to it, but does have this lightness that really makes it really worth reading. And um, I don't know, it's going to stick with me for a while. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Ben. Um, I think the the character that really activated things for me was in The Ghost Train Hunter. And when I started sort of searching around for people that would help tell the story with Geo, I was... I was really sort of interested in motivations that were either complementary or antagonistic to, um, to the protagonists. And uh, when, when I sort of aged Sten as a 60-year-old who had been chasing this train for 30 years and was completely at peace um, in his pursuit of something 
clearly unobtainable compared to Gio, who really was just starting out on his own journey and was, you know, really um, in angst at the idea of this dream that was so close but seemingly out of reach. And I thought that that was a great reflection um, for Gio. And then there are also the two sort of hippie backpackers who arrive on the scene and spend time with them and their concerns and goals extend no further than the hour they are living in. Um, they are just happy to be where they're at and to have a place to stay. So those different dynamics, I think, worked well to, 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 lighten, um, to lighten the tone and the atmosphere of the story. One of the things I found interesting as well is that this story kind of seems to take place in some some slightly alternative universe because I feel like that the the ghost train does get some media attention, but no one seems to mind that much about that whole idea of being a paranormal ghost train turning up and exporting Italians overseas. There seems to be more worry about the fact they might be illegal immigrants. <laughs> All of my stories tend to have some sort of phenomena skirting around the edges. And um, sometimes they're as um, present and physical as this ghost train becomes, as the narrative um, progresses. And sometimes they're a little bit further away. But my characters do, and, 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 and the people, you know, around in the um, in the community tend to sort of just accept what's happening um, without really questioning it too much. It's, it's, it's part of that reality. So it is sort of shifting the line a little bit. And I am asking the reader to really suspend their belief. But I mean, I believe it as a writer that, or I want to believe it enough that I'm sort of writing a reality that I would myself love to live in, where there are these extraordinary things on the edges creeping in. One of the characters I really enjoyed in this book is this Slubber Shane, who's the South African guy who runs a paranormal bookshop. I wanted to ask you, do you have any specific influence in, in the paranormal, I suppose? Um, no, I was... My background might be um, surprising. I was raised in a very um, um, religious, you know, Pentecostal evangelical household. And, um, and you know, we used to pray every night as a family before we went to bed. Um, I went to church or youth group on a Friday night, church three times on a, um, on a Sunday, um, if I was playing sport like soccer, which had matches on a Sunday, I, I wasn't allowed to play games because it was a day of rest. So I think when I sort of, um, when I left home, I really wanted to shed a lot of that constraint. And, but the starting point is, is that if you brought up believing in, in, in God and you, you brought up believing in the spirit world and then you sort of develop away from those sort of that you know that 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 sort of upbringing. Um, there's a lot of fun to be had to play around 
in that dimension if you're um, if you feel um, free enough to do so. So for me, the shift there wasn't wasn't too difficult. I just it just is not constrained to sort of that um, that evangelical Christian point of view. It's more constrained to the fact that well, everything exists, you know. Um, so so I think I think. I don't think I would be writing those stories if I didn't have that upbringing, um, um, if I didn't have that sort of, that, that presence of spirituality in the home uh, during those school years. We talked about how this book is quite different and hard to place, but did you have any specific influences writing the book? Um, I did. I'm always having to work quite hard not to sort of, mimic whatever writer is influencing me at the time but I had a, a real hard um, a hard time trying to find a comparative title for the book when I was submitting it so I would be reading maybe um, Shirley Jackson for sort of a paranormal element or I might be reading um um, a quirky writer who'll talk a, a, about a little bit later, like Patrick DeWitt, for, for, for the quirkiness. Um, but there wasn't any book that I felt that sat alongside it. Uh, not that I believe that my book is original in any sense. I don't think there is anything original, but I put together two or three sort of different ideas that I had. I hadn't seen in any other novels that I was writing. I mean, if anyone else else out there has read a novel that they think is a good comparative title for to the signal line, I'd love to know it because um, I'd love to read more books that really take on these sorts of um, this sort you know a sort of craziness and write it very straight. Mm. Interesting. Um, Transit Lounge have done a great job with the book. Um, the cover's beautiful. It was really nice to see it. I went to a local bookshop today and there was quite a few copies on the shelves. So um, what's it been like working with them? Uh, they've been an absolute gift to me. Um, the editorial process has been such a positive experience, um, Barry, led by Barry Scott and his team. Um, I felt like... I had an active voice in every step of the process, but the people who helped me sort of um, improve the book and bring it into the world just completely got the story I was trying to tell that really I just tried to keep myself out of the way and just defer to their judgment on everything that it was asking to me, uh, asked of me. I have to... Um, acknowledge Kate Goldsworthy, my amazing editor. Um, she was exceptional and um, her, her feedback was always on point. And I just really try to execute on every suggestion that, um, that, that was put to me. And then the cover, you know, from Josh Durham at Design by Committee, I couldn't have, um, have imagined um, um, such a cover for the book and I absolutely love it. This, so this book I feel has just received so much love and um, I, I feel incredibly grateful for, um, for, for the team and, and for Transit Lounge for helping me bring it into the world. I have to mention Martin Shaw very briefly. 
So I think he's obviously done a bit of work behind the scenes as well, hasn't he? Martin's amazing. And I'm sure Martin won't mind me saying this. He was one of the first agents I queried and um, he did pass on the manuscript. But it, that was an incredibly positive experience because for the first time I had an agent who was completely engaging with the book. He, um, he requested the first three chapters, then he requested 100, uh, 100 pages. At that point, he had some questions about it. And we had this big back and forth over what was the story I was trying to tell. And, and, and he read the whole book and he ultimately passed. But I thought, you know, if, if I ever write another manuscript, um, or if I get another chance, I'm coming back to Martin because this is, he seemed to be the kind of person that would be an agent that, that I would want. So I kept querying the novel, the, the manuscript, and um, it, had, oh, it, it had quite a tough journey, to be honest. I had one um, publisher who sort of, you know, seemed to be looking at it for a good couple of years that I won't mention. And then when the book a year and a half later um, won the, the Tasmanian um, Premier's Award for Unpublished Manuscript, there was a little bit more interest again. And by this point, Martin and I had become quite close. We're communicating a lot. He, he wasn't my agent, but he was giving me a lot of advice. And he was the one who suggested to me, you know, um, Barry at Transit Lounge, they've closed two queries this year but you should send it to him the, in January when they open again because you never know what Barry, what Barry likes. And that's what he said to me. So I did query and Barry liked it and took it on board. And I immediately went back to Martin and I asked him if he would be happy to come on board as my agent. So although he passed on it the first time, I think we were meant to be together and um, I wouldn't have gone to Transit Lounge if it wasn't for his suggestion and his guidance. So um, I, I owe him a lot. Do you have any advice for people trying to write books? Because I know you've you've worked on quite a few projects that haven't you know gone to fruition. What's your advice for young writers or old writers? Look, um, I think there's two things um, that. There's one thing that I would do differently that if I, if I started out again, and I've really invested all of my time mainly into long projects. Um, started out with feature length screenplays um, and, and then the novel form. So I've, the last 15 years I've been writing novels, but you only get to really test the quality of your, you know, your product every four to six years if you're working full, full time. So it was taking me four to six years. So a good couple of decades can pass with only maybe four projects to show for it. So the advice I would give is to, um, to write short fiction, to write poetry, to try and get published in, 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 other, in different outlets. I think not just will it help sort of um, broaden your skills as a writer, but it will give you a little bit of encouragement. It's still hard to get short fiction published, but, you know, at least if you're doing that and if you've got more balls in the air, you are going to, um, to get that encouragement from time to time to, to persist with the longer projects. So that's something I definitely 
um, I definitely um, recommend. And then the other thing that has really stood me well is that when I finish a project, um, I start the next project on the same day I finish the previous one. So that as you go through that grueling and often heart-wrenching sort of um, query process, which can take two years, in the meantime, you're bit by bit giving your creative spirit to something else. It doesn't soften the blow of rejection for sure, but um, it does remind you that um, the act of sitting down and creating is actually the most important thing. Mm. Uh, so that, that would be my response there. Great advice. Um, what are you working on at the moment? So I'm about a year, 14 months into a project. Um, I can't give too much away at this point more because I'm, I feel like I finally have committed to it that this will be the next novel that I write. But it is set in Hobart. Um, it has a, a similar stage. It is a family. I think that the... the the, the family is something that has been um, so what I've wanted to explore in my writing the last 10 years or so. Um, and yeah, there's, there's, there's something on the fringes creeping in that is um, just like the train, but not a train, something else this time that is sort of, um, you know, coming into the mix and, and challenging my characters. So um, I, think, I think it's a good pair for the signal line although honestly i started writing this before i got before i knew i was getting published so there is a little bit of me exploring a bit more of the theme that i was exploring in the signal line um because i felt like um i wasn't quite done with with some of those questions that i was asking okay brilliant looking forward to it Let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? So in thinking about this question, there's, um, there are three books that immediately come to mind, but I would say that they are three gateway books for me as a writer, um, not as a reader. And I think um, the first thing that I'd like to do is pay a little bit of a tribute to my parents. My, my parents divorced when I was young, right? I was like five, six years old. And I remember in my, my first years of, um, of primary school, we'd stay, my brother and I would stay with my father every second weekend. And our routine, our ritual was he would take us to a bookstore and we would spend time in the bookstore perusing and we'd all walk out with a book, but we would spend one and a half, two hours in a bookstore, all kind of sitting in little different nooks, reading books that sort of um, caught our attention and we'd all walk out with one book. Then we'd go to the Wimpy and have a toasted cheese and tomato sandwich and a milkshake. And then we'd go back to his house and we'd spend the afternoon reading the books that we had bought for ourselves that morning. And that really fostered a love and reading 
and saw me through primary school, I would then visit my school library during recess and lunch, um, always taking out books um, that, that weren't required just to read for pleasure. And then during high school and university, I moved around quite a lot. And the first thing I would always do, my mother and I lived with my mom, we would, um, we would find our local library and become members. And we would always have five or six books on our bedside table. So um, that, that phase that was such an important, um, important time for me where I um, just developed, what I was reading was almost in, incidental, but um, I needed to be always reading. So um, that really set me up that when, um, when I did start writing, I was able to be maybe a bit more selective in the kinds of things that I'd be reading. But the first gateway book for me, first year living in London after university, walking with a friend to Waterstones because he wanted to read a novel that he had heard a lot about by an author that I'd never heard of. And that was Post Office by Charles Bukowski. So we both went into Waterstones and just on his um, need to read that book, I bought myself Post Office. And when, when I read that book, I had a, a feeling that I'd never experienced reading any other book. I mean, even the dedication, this is a work of fiction and dedicated to nobody. And the first line, it began as a mistake. And so that just began, became a journey where I read all of his prose and, um, and all of his poetry, and I've pretty much got all of his books on my bookshelf. So um, he definitely um, um, did something to me. I think it was the honesty in his writing and that he's prepared to leave everything on the page and he wrote with the vocabulary of a child, which made me feel like I could write um, because the sentences were so simple, but they had an electricity to them that you could do something um, at a very simple level that was um, that that hit very hard. The next um, the next gateway book is very different um, in Japan now. And this is a couple of years later, and I've met another writer in the building, and um, he thrusts this book into my hand and says, you just have to read the first page, and it's White Noise by Don DeLillo. And, and that was a book that made me realise, okay, I can never be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> if, if this is the level, um, just you pack it up right now. And it just, it, it, it's... It, it's a phenomenal book. Um, so uh, I know I know you know this book. I know you've you've read him, but um, I can elaborate a bit more. But that, I then went on a journey where I just started reading um, Dillo, um, one after the other, until I had read everything. And then leading to the third book actually came out of Dillo. So I got up to I got up to par. I'd read everything Dillo had written, and suddenly he had released Cosmopolis, and I remember being in the bookshop in Kobe in Japan and, and I was going to walk out with Cosmopolis, but I, I was just sort of like reading the cover and the blurb and everything um, while I had it in my hand and it was dedicated to Paul Auster. And I didn't know who Paul Auster was, but I recognised the name. And I was like, I wonder if this guy's a writer. I turn around, I see all these Paul Auster books and I don't know any of them. 
And then when I opened it up and read, read the information, I saw that he had written the screenplay for Smoke, which was my all-time favorite movie. So now suddenly I have to read everything that Paul Auster's written. And I read New York Trilogy first and I liked it a lot. But the next book was the one that did it for me. It was The Book of Illusions. Um, and that's when I was like, okay, I just have to read, read everything he's written. So I would say those are the three um, gateway books for me. And I pretty much have all of their books still. I just need their energy on the shelf next to me. Um, and so, so they go with, with me wherever I go. Wow. <laughs> what are you currently reading? Okay. So I'm currently reading two books. The first is Lovers of Philosophy by Warren, Warren Ward. I don't know if you've heard on it, of it. It's really interesting. It's, um, as the subtitle says, it's how the intimate lives of um, seven philosophers shape modern thought. Um, uh, Warren is, um, is going to be in conversation in Hobart this Thursday with Damon Young. And yeah, so I'm going to that. And I just wanted to read the book before I got there. It's really great. Um, so that's, that's going now. And I recommend that. And then the, the other one maybe gives a little bit more um, of a clue as to, um, as to the novel I'm cu currently writing and what might be sort of skirting around there, you know, on the fringes. It's by someone called Ross Coulthard. He's an investigative journalist, um, Australian. It's called In Plain Sight, an investigation into UFOs and impossible science. <laughs> so that's a lot of fun. Very cool. I've heard lots of good things about that book. So yeah, very cool. Um, are there any books that you're looking forward to this year? Yes. So I'll tell you what my next seven or eight books are. I've, my my, um, my to-be-read pile is growing. I've just pulled out about six. So um, all of them, actually, except for one, are Australian. So I've got a couple of books of poetry, Ellen Van Nieuwen, Comfort Food. I've had that sitting on my bedside table for a while now, and I really need to read it. Um, I love her, her, her verse. Um, Scott Patrick Mitchell, Clean, which is really interesting. He's a Western Australian writer, and this work of poetry really deals with, um, with addiction and um and the meth methamphetamine crisis in australia today so that'll be interesting andrew ross teeth of, of a slow machine you've had him on recently so mm. i'm looking forward to his book of short stories as well as um adam austin's waypoints um and he's also been a recent guest robert lucan's loveland and um and an interesting book that my wife got me a while ago that I still haven't read called Mostly Dead Things. Have you heard of it? No. No, it's, it's, it's a story about, um, about a young woman who basically step, steps up to manage her family's failing taxidermy business because her father recently died. And <laughs> it, it sounds like it's got a sort of quirkiness in it that would be appealing to me. And then last week, my wife bought me um, 
to novellas. I don't read um, a lot of novellas, but I think that I want to do a little bit of deep dive into um, the novella form. And um, so the one that I'm going to be reading soon is Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson. I don't know anything about it, but it's been highly recommended by a few people to me. And um, the one that I actually I read last week was um, Chess by Stefan Zweig, if I'm pronouncing his name mm. correctly. And that was fantastic. So, and that, that just whet my appetite. And I thought um, I need to seek out um, more novellas. I think my problem with novellas is I, I actually love the format. I think my problem is that the price per kilo is just not worth the money sometimes. So I feel like that, you know, if you can get a 400 page book for 20 bucks and a 80 page novella for the same price, I'm usually going to go the longer form, but that's just a personal gripe. Um, publishers, if you're out there, I reckon 11.95 would be a great price and I'd buy a lot more novellas. <laughs> for me, I think for me, um, the, I think the reason why I don't read a lot of novellas is, and, and, and probably the reason why I don't write short fiction, I love spending time with characters in the story. Mm. And so the better that a short story is or a novella is, almost the more disappointing it is to me when, when the story ends so, so quickly. But um, reading Stefan Zweig's Chess or you know, reading um, The Body or Stand By Me by Stephen King, you know, or, or, or Shirley Jackson, you really can see what can be done um, by the true masters of that form. Mm. No, it is, a, it is a great form. I'd love to read more of it. Um, and I'm, yeah, trying to do that slowly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, are there any other books you've recently enjoyed that you want to talk about? Um, I pulled out almost a third of my bookshelf to bring <laughs> onto the table because I didn't know where you were going to go. Um, but uh, over um, over Christmas, uh, the Christmas New Year break, I had a couple of weeks off work, and I read um, I read A Movable Feast again by Ernest Hemingway. I mean, it's it, I just that book hasn't aged, and it was as pleasurable to read, um, you know, the second or third time around as it was when I first read it over 20 years ago. But the thing that made it interesting is, um, well, first, have you heard of the Icelandic tradition called Yola Book of Flood? No. Oh, greatest, <laughs> you're a book lover, greatest um, tradition out there. So basically in Iceland, there's this tradition on New Year's Eve of um, exchanging a book with your loved ones or your family and then spending the evening reading and eating chocolate. So um, my wife and I have been doing this tradition for about six years. And, um, and I, think, I think the whole idea was to sort of revive the book industry that was struggling at a certain point, much like, you know, Valentine's Day for chocolates. But, um, yeah, so for this um, Yolabaka flood that just passed, my wife gave me um, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. So Alice Toklas was Gertrude Stein's partner and, um, and muse. And this autobiography 
of Alice B. Toplis is, yeah, it's not written by Alice B. Toplis. It's written by Gertrude Stein, imagining the autobiography that Gertrude St uh, that Alice Toplis would have written. But reading it, um, reading it while I was reading A Movable Feast, it was really interesting to see whose points of view over certain um, over certain events and and how certain artists and writers were characterized. Um, and where the crossover was and what the difference was. So that was a pleasure reading those two together. Um, I also read uh, George Saunders' A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. I don't know if you've read that. Read it yet. Brilliant. Um, and not just for writers, but I do try to read books on writing from time to time. And um, this is perhaps the best that I've ever read. And I learned... I learned how to read a little bit better after having read this book. So I recommend that. And then another debut um, book that I read, I've had heard it mentioned on your podcast before, but The Keepers by L. Campbell. Um, that's the closest I've come in terms of, of feeling a spectrum of emotions, reading The Keepers by L. Campbell, as when I read... Um, a Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. So I, I think this this book is 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 really an achievement, um, and it's it's difficult to read, but I think it's an important book. And then um, another book is a, a graphic novel, uh, Blankets. It's a um, it's a coming of age memoir, and um, and this particular character as well was sort of involved in the church during their school years as I was so it was really interesting for me to 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 read a memoir where I could really identify with the journey and and the questions that um that that that, that this particular character was was asking we'll take a quick break here on me on the zero we're speaking with Brendan Colley This episode is brought to you by Elon Musk and the brand new Twitter. We value your free speech, you Join now, you piece of We're back on Meal on the Zero. It's time for Brendan's Top 10. I think I've got them in two groups. I mean, I think it's standard, but three of my top 10 are my gateway books. So um, they just have to be here. Um, um, Post Office is not, the, um, is not the book that I read 25 years ago or however long ago it was because um, I kept giving my copy away and then buying a new copy. I felt like I had to sort of um, evangelize that book. But I've got that here, White Noise, Paul Alster, Book of Illusions. Have to throw in um, A Confederacy of Dancers. I think I was so attracted to the story of John Kennedy Tool um, before I even read the first page, hearing how he had written this novel, he was rejected how he took his life at the age of 31, um, partly in reason, 
to the fact that um, that he couldn't find a home for this novel, and then how his mother, you know, went and really um, um, pushed this book and impressed this book upon um, upon certain people until finally someone read it and and and, and it was acknowledged as a great book. The thing, the thing that um, my 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 favorite books, the thing that is, I suppose, in common with all of them, is when I read for pleasure, I really want a story. I want um, I want an arc. When I write, that's what I'm focused on. Is the motivation and um, and the conflict, and and the starting point and and the journey that a character is going on. But all of my important books, well, I just love them for the voice, <laughs> which is um, and so um, you just read two or three pages of John Kennedy tool and you know you're reading a voice that you um, you haven't read before. Same thing goes for um, the remains of the day, Kazuo Ishiguro. Uh, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing. I only read him for the first time last year. I read Clara and the Sun, loved it. And, um, and immediately, um, I think remains of the day was then dropped on Netflix or something. My wife and I were like, okay, well, Let's go read Remains of the Day and then we'll watch the film again. And um, absolutely blown away by the complete control that Ishiguro has um, in, in adopting the, um, you know, the essence of his protagonist. There's a 17-page scene in here where, um, where the character, uh, uh, by, by the way, um, this book, um, the thing that Ishiguro was, was really exploring was, was dignity and, and what does it mean to have dignity? And so he, he knew that that's what he wanted to explore before he had a character and before he had an occupation and he chose an English butler. And there's a scene in this um, novel where, where, the but, where the butler Stevens, his father, who in his own day was a great esteemed and, and, and well-regarded butler, is upstairs um, and has passed away. And Stevens is carrying out his duties as a butler downstairs where there are these dignitaries involved in a very important um, important meeting and he's sort of moving between upstairs and downstairs dealing with this event of his father passing while not um, really revealing to his employer and to the guests emotionally what he's going through and how he um, crafted that scene um, deserves to be read and studied so and then I come on to the second pile, and these next five books, I would say, are authors who I think are still writing in their peak, relatively early in their careers with maybe two or three or four books behind them, even though they, they, they are... Um, they are very well-regarded authors, but this would be my answer to the question of whose books would you read next just because they wrote it? It would be these five writers. The first would be Sayaka Murata, 
she wrote Convenience Store Woman, but the book I've chosen is Earthlings. And um, I just think she's an astonishing writer. Her third book is coming out this year. I cannot wait. I don't know what it's about. I'm deliberately avoiding any information. I want to open it and read that first page and be as surprised and astonished as I was when I read Earthlings. In my view, Earthlings is simply a book you cannot recommend to anybody. Um, you have to sort of discover it, but I think I can safely just list it here. So it's up to um, it's up to the listeners out there if that's something that they would like to read. The next one would be um, Patrick DeWitt. And it's not the Sisters Brothers. The book for me is Under Major Domomana. Um, Love that book, love, love Sisters Brothers, but Under Major Domomana tells the story of this sort of compulsive liar called um, uh, Lucy Minor. And he, he takes up a, a role as an assistant to a, um, uh, as an assistant to the Major Domo at a remote um, a castle um, set somewhere in in Europe some time ago. But this, this protagonist is so unreliable that Patrick DeWitt, it cannot be written from a first point, you know, a first person point of view. So it's written really where we're sitting on this character's shoulder, very close third person story. But um, the voice is, is, is so alive that you feel like you're inside this character's head. I remember um, starting it, um, on we boarded a plane to go to Japan for, for, for a, ho a holiday. And I'm the kind of person who never reads on planes. I, I get involved in, in movies and, and stuff to pass the time. And I read this book and finished it literally as we were landing in Japan. And it's the first time a book's ever done that to me. So Patrick DeWitt um, and then Willie Vlauten. Do you know Willie Vlauten? I've heard of him, but I don't, haven't read him. Yeah, so he was uh, a game. He was a Yolabaka flood. My wife just knows what I would love. She works in a bookstore. So, um, wait, wait. So, what? Your your wife is a writer, and she works in a bookshop. What bookshop is she in? Her what bookshop? Yeah, is she in Fuller's as well. Excuse me. Is she working at Fuller's too. No, the Hobart Bookshop. The Hobart Bookshop. Okay. Down at, down at Salamanca. <laughs> oh no, it's okay. I've been there. There you go. Very good. Yeah, so she got me Willie Blatt and this book, Don't Skip Out on Me. And um, um, again, it's the voice. This is, this is not a writer where you pitch a, a, a particular sort of a, a particular plot line, but he tends to take a character who is, is um, a little bit down and out and, and is going on a journey. They're either running away from something, they're running towards something, they're returning to something. And it's the matter of factness of the tone and, and even how he would have a character arrive home and get out of a car and walk up to the door and go in, open the fridge. He, he writes those little passing moments that reveal character in a way that I would sort of myself, I would adhere to the rule of the scene, get in late, get out early. Willie Vlaten doesn't ever get out or get in. He just writes, 
those passing moments of time in a way that has a page turning quality. And um, I'm now up to speed on everything he's written and um, his books are just a straight eight out of 10 every single time. Um, um, they never below. And, and it's just, it's unfair He's also a professional musician and a singer-songwriter and he's got a band and he just basically is born to make art, I think. Meg Howry, The Wanderers, is a brilliant book. Um, I discovered her, I was listening to another writer's podcast and, and the writer on that podcast really sold me this book, but it's really about four people, astronauts, who are preparing and training to go on the first manned mission to Mars. And the story deals with the period of time where they are going to do a complete simulation of it in a uh, in some sort of vehicle out in the desert where the NASA team are going to throw them challenges and obstacles and they really have to simulate that, that, that close proximity of living. And um, it's, it's completely character-driven. And um, there are eight points of view, the four astronauts, and then one significant other of each of those astronauts. And the book sort of rotates between those eight points of view. And again, when I read this book, I thought, okay, that's that's writing character at a level that I can just admire from afar. And uh, I've read her other work. She's got her um, next book coming out um, this year. So um, she's definitely on the list of someone that I would um, I would read whatever she writes. And the final one is Susanna Clark, Piranesi. And um, I would have said. Um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It's such a spectacular novel. Uh, my wife and I went on a three-week road trip around Romania, and I read that novel. It was just the 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 perfect um, the perfect partner for that trip. But then she she wrote this this book Piranesi that came out last year that couldn't be more different, and I think it's an astonishing piece of writing. Um, whereas Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is like 800 page, this is a very slim book. And I'm reading it again for the second time um, because I'm attending a, a book club. We're talking about it next week. And now that I know how the book ends, reading it again and seeing how she has constructed this book is a marvel to me. So um, there are my 10. That's amazing. I think that's one of the first times I think we've had a top 10 that we probably haven't had any of those books on before, apart from White Noise, perhaps, but that's really cool. Oh, that, that is cool. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to do some shopping now. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before you wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can find you online and where we can buy the brilliant The Signal Line? Oh, thanks, Ben. So um, at Brendan Colley on socials. And um, the signal line, I think it's just in, 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 in most of those conventional places, support your local indie bookstore if you can. And um, those retailers also have an online presence with, with um, options to ship internationally as well. So 
but I would like to thank you for um, for the chance to come on and, and chat about the book and thank you for reading it. Oh, no, thank you for coming on. I think it's a great book. I think everyone should go out and get a copy because it's really, it's quite different. It's quite unique. It's set in Hobart and who can go wrong with that? And um, yeah, I think it's a, just a really great, fun read. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you for coming and joining me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, brilliant. Um, great chatting, Ben, and you go well. You too. Thanks once again to Brendan Colley. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode next week. <laughs>